welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and I'm so glad to be with you today. We are continuing on in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and if you're just joining us for the first time or you missed an episode or a few or more, you can find all the previous episodes at my home on the web at ThankfulHomemaker.com. If you just hover over the Christian Living tab, you'll see a menu drop down, and there you'll see the Sermon on the Mount series, and you can click on that, and it will take you to all the episodes. So last month, we dealt with the sin of our adulterous hearts, and today we are tackling the issue of divorce and remarriage, and we're going to work through what God's Word tells us about it. And I'm getting honest here with you, this is an episode that I was really not looking forward to working through and sharing here with you, because I know so many of our lives have been affected by divorce, and it is a very sensitive subject, and there is much hurt and pain in many of our lives still by divorce. So my desire isn't to cause any more hurt here. So please know that. Know my heart before we start to dig in here. But I do want to be biblical and always, 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 my friend, we know this. The question that we're answering in all these episodes is to be, what does God's word say? I also want you to stay with me, even if you're saying to yourself right now, Marcy, this doesn't concern me. Well, it does, because you're if you are part of the body of Christ, right? If you are born again, repented of your sins, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are a Christian, then we should desire to understand every aspect of the teachings of the Word of God. I know we're not going to get to everything in this life. I get that. But we need to continue to be learners of God's Word, not just learners, right, and doers, This is an area that you may find yourself having to give counsel to on others, or or to others on, I should say. It's worth your time to get a good understanding on these scriptures and for you to interpret them. Understand what your church believes. Talk to your pastor and elders if you have questions. But in the end, you need to be a good Berean and observe, interpret, and apply the text on your own. I had fairly minimal knowledge of this area. I probably thought I had more than I did, but it was pretty minimal. And when I began working through this episode, I was so grateful to have spent the time studying through it. And my hope is you won't just listen, but it's going to maybe desire you to dig a bit deeper yourself. So our text today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And Jesus is continuing on with his it was said statements where he says, but I say to you, and he's addressing the Pharisees. So let me start there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we're going to go back to the text where Jesus is quoting from here in our verses in Matthew today. He's quoting from part of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and I'm just going to read these. And again, 
All the scripture references are in the show notes. Any quotes that I mention are in the show notes and pretty much any resources I mention are in the show notes. So you can always find those over at the blog at thankfulhomemaker.com. So let me go back here to Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4. So it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not again be t- may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the lord your god is giving you for an inheritance so in deuteronomy 24 1 there's there's an issue that arose with the word there indecency and what that meant because if you were living at that time and you followed rabbi Hillel, he looked at that word indecency, meaning you could be a bad cook, or you could say a wrong word about your mother-in-law, or you could go walking around the town with your hair down. And another rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, he took it further. He took it further seeing that indecent, meaning a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman who was more beautiful. And then the school of Shammai limited indecency to other types of offenses, short of adultery, like sexual misconduct or shameful exposure. And we have to remember here, in the Old Testament, the sin of adultery, it resulted in the death penalty. So there was no need for divorce. (laughs) If your spouse was caught unfaithful, they were put to death and you were free to remarry. No divorce needed. That probably was a pretty good deterrent, I would think. I, I don't know that for sure. I'm just saying that. But when the Pharisees approached Jesus with this question in Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, they said, And the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So this was their thinking. They were trying to bring Jesus into this debate that had been going on for a long time. Some commentators even stated that the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus in trouble with Herod since he would be taking the same view of divorce and remarriage that got John the Baptist beheaded. Whatever their reason is, Jesus takes them back to the beginning, to creation, to God's design for male and female becoming one flesh. And I'm continuing on here. I'm still in Matthew chapter 19. I'm continuing on in verses 4 and 5. So he, Jesus, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So Jesus was quoting here from Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. And R. Kent Hughes, from his um, his excellent resource, it's literally called the Sermon on the Mount. It's his commentary on Matthew. So he said, in the beginning, divorce was inconceivable and impossible. Jesus quoted lines from Genesis chapter 2, 23 to 24 to emphasize two things. First, the intimacy of the marriage relationship. Jesus says there, the two shall become one flesh. There is no other intimacy like it. It is deeper than one's relationship with their own children. We are not one flesh with them. 
The scripture says that a man becomes one flesh with his wife. Marriage is the deepest human relationship. And he continues, he says, in second, after intimacy, the emphasis is on permanence. There was no thought of divorce ever. God's ideal was and is monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage. This is what he approves of. Anything less is a departure from the divine model, and the fall did not change that ideal. We all know that some things possible before the fall were not possible afterward, but regarding divorce, God's standard did not change. We not only see this in the very first book of the Old Testament, but the very last one, end quote there. And Arkan Hughes is referring to Malachi verse, um, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, which read, Why has God abandoned us, you cry? I'll tell you why. It is because the Lord has seen your treachery in divorcing your wives who have been faithful to you through the years, the companions you promised to care for and keep. You were united to your wife by the Lord in God's wise plan when you married. The two of you became one person in his sight. And what does he want? godly children from your union. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says he hates divorce and cruel men. Therefore, control your passions. Let there be no divorcing of your wives. So God hates divorce. We all know this. It is not his original plan for his creation in the marriage covenant. It's a digression from his original design. We can't even argue that point. Jesus answers the Pharisees' question of why did Moses allow divorce? In Matthew 19, 7, we're still continuing that Matthew 19 right now, the Pharisees continued, and again, they are referring here to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, but in Matthew um, 19, verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus answers them, continuing on in verse 8 there of 19, He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus corrects the Pharisees and note the wording there. Moses allowed or permitted. He did not command it as the Pharisees said it. Moses granted it for the woman's protection. So in verse seven there, the Pharisees said, why did Moses command? And Jesus corrects them that he did not command it. He allowed or permitted it. So our Kent Hughes kind of helps us to understand this text a bit more. So this is good background stuff to grasp for this. Without a certificate, she could be subject to exploitation, even recrimination. The certificate also prevented the man from marrying her again. Thus, she could not be treated like chattel. Marriage was not something one could walk in and out of. The reason God allowed divorce was the hardness of heart to which the men of Israel had succumbed. It was a divine concession to human weakness, reluctant permission at best, end quote. Okay, so now we're getting to our passages today, all right, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. If you're still here with me, thank you, okay, because this is the heart of the study, but the background is necessary to have a clear understanding of the context of this text. So as I move forward here, there are varying views when or if divorce is allowed in the scriptures and if remarriage is or isn't allowed. There are solid theologians on all sides of these views, okay? This is an area of scripture we can disagree on. It is not a salvific issue, so you may hold a different view from even others in your own congregation. Even your pastor, you could hold a different view from. We all need to think through this as spiritually mature believers and know that we can differ. 
We can debate and work through the differences, but it should not divide us from fellowshipping and loving one another. So please hear me. When we sever what God has joined together, it's a serious matter. So no matter which area you fall under, okay, we need to hold to this truth. Our society we live in doesn't hold marriage in high regard. And sadly, many churches don't hold marriage in high regard. But my hope is as believers, we would never enter into a marriage ever, ever with the thought that we could just divorce if it doesn't work out. Your marriage is one of the major issues the Lord uses in your life to sanctify you, to sanctify you and to grow you into his likeness. I came across some interesting statistics on marriage, and I know statistics are always changing and they can kind of say about anything, I suppose, but let me share a few of these because they were a little eye-opening. So in 1910, only one in 10 marriages ended in divorce. In 1920, it had risen to one in seven. By 1940, it was one in six. And by 1960, it was one in every four. And by 1970, it was one in three. And today, one of every two marriages will end in divorce. So I know divorce touches pretty much all of us in some way, whether us or our parents or our grandparents or other family members and friends. My parents were divorced when I was just a baby. So before I begin, I want to state again, my desire is to esteem marriage as God does in his word, and it is never meant to hurt or pass judgment in any way on those of you who have been divorced. I don't know all your circumstances, and I hope if you were a believer when it happened that you sought godly counsel. We do want to be reminded of the importance of keeping our vows and commitments, and I fully grasp that we live in a fallen world. I get this. So in our time, I do want to stress the permanence of marriage, no matter the view you take. The hope of every young married couple should be till death do us part. I'm going to come back to this thought a little bit more at the end when I close too. So so let me get into our study time. I want to briefly state the three main positions on divorce and remarriage in the evangelical church. I'm going to attach a bunch of resources in the show notes if you want to dig a bit deeper on your own. And always, if you have questions, please take them to your pastor or your elders in your church. And as I state each one, I'm going to walk through them briefly, but I'm going to spend the most time on the one that is most widely practiced in our evangelical churches. It's going to probably be the one you're most familiar with. So the three views are, first is the permanence view, and I'm just going to give you just a one-sentence view of each of these. So the permanence view is no divorce and no remarriage, and there's remarriage only if one of the spouse one of the spouses dies. Then there's the semi-permanence view, where divorce is permitted on biblical grounds, but no remarriage unless your spouse dies. And then there's the permissive view. And this one is the most widely held view that allows for divorce for adultery. And then there are variances in some churches with many allowing for divorce in the case of abandonment of a believer from an unbelieving spouse. Some even allow for divorce of physical abuse, and I'm not touching on that in here. But remarriage is permitted if the divorce was on biblical grounds, and remarriage is not permitted if divorced on unbiblical grounds. Remarriage in that case would be considered adultery. Remarriage is only allowed if one spouse dies. So it would have to be on biblical grounds. So first, let's walk through the permanence view. Okay, This isn't held by a lot of people, but by, by quite a few, but it holds to no divorce. And the only cause for remarriage is if the former spouse dies. So if one does divorce 
and remarries, no matter the circumstances, this view holds that if they remarry while their spouse is still alive, it's considered to be adultery. So John Piper would be one that would hold this view and Vody Bauckham would be another one. I have some of their resources in the show notes. So John Piper has a lengthy position paper on this and lists 11 reasons why he believes the scriptures clearly state why all remarriage after divorce is prohibited while both spouses are still alive. His book, This Momentary Marriage, is an excellent read, even if you don't hold to this view on the permanence view of marriage. Every time I think I say that, truly as believers, we should all enter marriage with the permanence view. But I'm going to take some help from his article, and I referenced his book some to walk through this with you. So since marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and we know Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us as his bride, the church, the view here is we may only divorce when Christ divorces his church, which is never. So, but no, even in this view, it's reminded that Jesus offers redemption and forgiveness to all who call on him as the faithful bridegroom. So if you look through Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, give that a read when you have time. Again, these verses are in the show notes. But that particular text brings together Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.24, as well as Deuteronomy 24.1. And I those are all in the show notes. But Jesus is taking us in in that text to the beginning, namely to what God joins together, man should not separate. John Piper states that we as Christians are called to a higher ethic regarding adultery and other sins in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you heard that it was said, but I say to you. So we also face a higher calling in marriage than the worldview. In looking at the text Jesus used in Matthew 19 on marriage and divorce, This is John Piper's comments on those verses, and this quote is in the show notes too if you want to read through it. He said, we must say a word about the quote exception clause. In Matthew 19, 3 through 12, here it's often held that Jesus allows for divorce in the case of adultery. The word though is not adultery, but it's the Greek word moikia, it's M-O-I-C-H-E-I-A, and that word is typically used for sexual immorality. In fact, the word for divorce here is the same one used in Matthew 1.19 to describe what Joseph intended to do to Mary and their betrothal. It's not a real divorce then, but a separation of betrothed parties. Jesus is outlining provisions for dealing with fornication within the context of betrothal. Thus, this is, this is no exception clause for divorce, he says. This view is not widely held, but it's worth considering in light of the heightened calling Christians look to in the wake of Jesus' coming into the world. So the permanence view holds that those who find themselves in a divorce should remain single to show forth the true nature of marriage being a picture of the covenant of Christ and the church. It is a lifelong commitment to one spouse. So he says death of a spouse would be the only legitimate reason for remarriage because when a spouse dies, there's, there's no remarriage in heaven, right? We know that. He states here in Romans 7, 1 through 3 as the passage which would allow for a spouse to remarry after the death of their spouse. And I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 for you. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. 
So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So this particular view holds that God's grace is sufficient to enable a divorced Christian to remain single all their earthly life if necessary. Let me give a few final thoughts here from John Piper's very lengthy position paper, but it was just a good read on the permanence of marriage as we close on this particular, on this view before we move to the next one. So he says, marriage is a one flesh relationship of divine establishment and extraordinary significance in the eyes of God. He says, only God, not man, can end this one flesh relationship. Um, And he says, this is why remarriage is called adultery by Jesus. He assumes that the first marriage is still binding says, God ends the one flesh relationship of marriage only through the death of one of the spouses. And he's referenced in their Romans chapter 7, 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. The grace and power of God are promised and sufficient to enable a trusting, divorced Christian to be single all this earthly life if necessary. And he references 1 Corinthians 10, 13 there, and Matthew 19, 10, and also Matthew um, 19, 12, and 26. He says, temporal frustrations and disadvantages are much to be preferred over the disobedience of remarriage and will yield deep and lasting joy, both in this life and the life to come. And then he has some words here to those who are already remarried. He says, they should acknowledge that the choice to remarry and the act of entering a second marriage was sin and confess it as such and seek forgiveness. He says, they should not attempt to return to the first partner after entering a second union. And then he says they should not separate and live as single people, thinking that this would result in less sin because all their sexual relations are acts of adultery. He says the Bible does not give prescriptions for this particular case, but it does treat second marriages as having significant standing in God's eyes. He says that is there were promises made and there's been a union formed. It should not have been formed, but it was. It's not to be taken lightly. Promises are to be kept and the union is to be sanctified to God. While not the ideal state, staying in a second marriage is God's will for a couple and their ongoing relations should not be looked at on, looked on as adulterous. So that's kind of his view there and just walking through that. And I'm just... I'm going to assume that most of my listeners probably don't hold to the permanence view. There may be quite a few of you out there, but so my hope is through this quick walkthrough of it, you have a better understanding of this view. Maybe it's the first time you ever heard of this view. Um, I can kind of remember my first time I ever heard of it. And again, my reminder, we can differ and we can still have unity. This is an area that we would call adiaphora. I don't know that I ever say that word right, but it, it references the disputable matters that we find in Romans 14.1, or as the ESV refers to it as opinions. We're not to argue over these areas as believers. There are essentials to the faith that we are to hold to, and we need to agree upon things like the deity of Christ, things like salvation by grace through faith alone, and then there are areas, adiaphora, that we will differ. Things like end times views, things like views on marriage and divorce, okay? I appreciate this quote from the Simply Put podcast on adiaphora, and I'm linking to their episode. It's a great podcast to listen to. But they say, in necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. In all things, charity. End quote there. I love that. So let's move on to the next view held by churches, and it's called the semi-permanence view. So this view would hold that divorce. Look at that. This view would hold that divorce is permissible for adultery, and in some views, abandonment. But remarriage is not permissible. 
you can only remarry if your spouse has died. So many of the early church fathers held this view. There's not, there's not, I had a hard time finding specifics written on it. Um, and the, the names that were given of the people that do hold to it weren't names that I was particularly familiar with. And I always don't like sharing those names because I'm not clear. But this view comes from several texts. So one is from Romans chapter 7, verses 2 through 3, which we read above, but let me, we read it a little bit ago, but let me reread it to you. Um, starting in chapter two, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And then also in first Corinthians chapter seven, verses 10 through 11, he says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So if the couple divorced and one spouse died, the other would be free to remarry. Otherwise, in this view, remarriage while your spouse is alive with this view would see you as committing adultery under any remarriage, even in the case of divorce for adultery or abandonment um, from, a not, from an unbelieving spouse. So we touched on and literally just touched on these because each one of these could really hold to their own episode. But I wanted to give you a quick overview of the differing text views on these texts. So given these two views, just a quick summary here, we had first the permanence view, which holds to no divorce and no remarriage. Um, and re any remarriage would be considered adultery. And then the semi-permanence view, which holds to divorce is permitted, but no remarriage, any remarriage would be considered adultery. To our last view, which is called the permissive view, and it's where the majority of Christianity falls, or evangelical Christianity, I should say. This view does allow for divorce and remarriage, but it also has some variations of exceptions and clauses. We have the view of one clause, which is divorce and remarriage only in the case of adultery. So that's a one clause permissive view. Then we have the two clause permissive view, which is divorce and remarriage in the case of adultery and also in the abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. There are some who bring in physical abuse as a clause too. And I said earlier, I'm not addressing that part. There's not, I don't know how, you know, that's that's one that I, I don't have clarity in the scriptures on, so I'm not even going there on that one. Most fall into the two-clause category, though, of adultery and abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. I'm just going to start saying abandonment, and you're going to know that's what that means, that it's a believing spouse being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Um, so this is, this is these are the two areas I'm going to work through with you today. And if someone remarries for any reason outside of those two reasons, it would be considered adultery. It would not be biblical grounds for a divorce. That means a remarriage would be considered adultery. So you are free to remarry if your divorce was biblical or your spouse has died. So now we're going to jump back in here to our Matthew text from this point forward as we move. So let me reread Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So 
we're, we're really honing in here on verse 32. So the word for divorce in um, Matthew 5.32 in the Greek means literally to, to loose from and to free fully, to relieve, release, and in this context, to divorce. And our word here for sexual immorality is pornea in the Greek, and it means to commit sexual sin. Our English word pornography comes from this term. So please hear this, and I'm going to repeat it again. Jesus is not saying that sexual immorality must lead to divorce. Nowhere in the scriptures is divorce commanded. God's design for marriage is truly the permanence view. God has allowed for divorce even in the time of Moses because of the hardness of men's hearts. This was not his desire or original plan for marriage. Jesus is addressing a heart issue here. It is a hardening of the heart. In Matthew 19, 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So from the beginning there, from the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, God's design was that marriage was to be a permanent covenant. We need to be reminded of this again and again. When they use the term pornea in Matthew 5, 32, and it's being addressed to married persons there. It can mean marital infidelity, illicit intercourse. It could involve adultery or illicit um, intercourse that may involve adultery or homosexuality or bestiality and all the like. I'm not even going to go there. But remember what we talked about at the beginning of this episode, that adultery of any kind in the Old Testament was punished by death. The marriage was ended by death, not divorce. But by the time of the Roman Empire, the death penalty was not easy to obtain, and the Jewish law substituted divorce for death in regards to marital infidelity. So Jesus took the teaching of the Pharisees. He, he notched it up here because, remember, they were divorcing for all kinds of things, depending on which rabbi's teaching you followed. For You could be divorced for not being a good cook or wearing your hair down in public. And Jesus cranks this up. He takes it up a notch, and he says, no. The only reason divorce is, is, is allowed is for adultery. And if you divorce for any other reason and you remarry, you commit adultery. I'm going to say it again. Let me read 532 again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We have other passages in scripture, and let me read a few that don't have that exception clause in them. And you kind of remember that term from John Piper's view there. Matthew, Mark chapter 10, verses 11 through 12 says, And he who said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And Luke 16, 18 says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced, a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So John Stott stated on these other statements of Jesus, Jesus having no exception clause to divorce in the case of adultery, he said here, he said it seems far more likely that it's the exception clause's absence from Mark and Luke is due not to their ignorance of it, but to their acceptance of it as something taken for granted. He said, after all, under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. And he says, although the death penalty for this offense seems to have fallen into disuse by the time of Jesus, so nobody would have questioned that marital unfaithfulness was a just ground for divorce, end quote there. So please note here, Jesus permitted divorce and remarriage on one ground, that of marital unfaithfulness, but he didn't command it. Nowhere in scripture is divorce commanded. Very often, people can use marital unfaithfulness to get out of a difficult marriage. Our Kent Hughes said, Many look for a way out instead of a way through the problems. 
So marital unfaithfulness, it's not to be taken lightly, and it's a serious offense. Think things, is it ongoing? Was it a one-time offense? Is there true repentance? I'm not even covering all that could be stated there, but I want to quote our Kent Hughes again. He said, no matter how rough things are, regardless of the stress and strain, whatever is said about compatibility and temperament, nothing allows for divorce except unfaithfulness. And even then, it is not to be used as an excuse to get out of the relationship. He says the radicalness of what Jesus taught is further underlined in Matthew 5 by it being one by its being one of the six statements that begin with variations of you heard that it was said but I say to you demonstrating the superior righteousness of Christ the point of these statements is this is the way a righteous person lives thus his or her marital relationship is supremely sacred nothing can sever it but unrepentant un faithfulness, and then it is not an excuse for ending the marriage, but it is the sorrowful ground of divorce. He says, according to Christ, marriage demands total commitment that only death or the most flagrant ongoing sexual infidelity can bring to an end, end quote there. Our other clause we listed for divorce that we're going to discuss, and it's not mentioned here in Jesus in Matthew 5.32, but I want to address it quickly because many of you are thinking about it, and that is the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me just read verse 10 through 12. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So in the time of the Apostle Paul, and really in our day too, there were mixed marriages. Both spouses marry as unbelievers, and one comes to faith, right? And then it's a mixed marriage, and now they're unequally yoked. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 7, he states that the unbelieving spouse and children may be influenced towards Christ by the believing spouse, so you should stay married. He says there in verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In verse 15, he states, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the teaching here is, if you're a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever and they desert you, I mean, they're just gone. They're not coming back, right? They just walk away from the marriage. You're not enslaved to the marriage, but you may divorce and remarry. So in the permissive view, there are two clauses, the adultery and abandonment, where you can divorce and remarry. Remarriage is allowed in this permissive view. One, when your spouse commits adultery, and then you divorce. Two, when you're abandoned by your unbelieving spouse, and you divorce. And three, when your spouse dies. If you remarry after a divorce on unbiblical grounds, you are committing adultery in the eyes of the Lord. Let me just really quick here. What about, in case you're asking this in your head, what if your divorce happened before you were a believer? So most commentators agree that we are here to look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new believer is just what it says, new. 
Your sins are forgiven. You've been given a clean slate by the Lord. So most would agree if you were married and divorced before coming to Christ, you are allowed to remarry. So let me work our time to a closer. And I'm hoping that I open these verses and give some clarity and things for you to study on your own. Or if the thought of divorce is on your mind, that these truths of scripture are going to pierce your heart, my friend. Because there's many inside and outside the church who divorce on unbiblical grounds. Reasons like, we don't like or love each other anymore. Um, They're not a believer. We don't have sex. They are never going to change. Staying married will harm the children. We don't have anything in common. We just don't get along. Okay, marriage as a Christian is to be held in high esteem. And we need to do everything in our power by God's grace to pursue marriages that honor the Lord and point to the beautiful mystery of Christ and the church. Marriage is to make us holy. A good marriage is a gift from the Lord, but it is work. It is a continual dying of self and putting the needs of the other above yourself. And who is our example here? And thinking Philippians chapter 2, Jesus is our example. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 comes to mind here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This would be a whole episode on just these verses, but I want to quote John MacArthur here. He said, the sacredness of the church is wed to the sacredness of marriage. So by your marriage, you are either a symbol or a denial of Christ and his church. End end quote there. So some thoughts here, and I know this is a longer episode, and I still feel like I barely touched on it, but I wanted to try to touch on as much as I could. So thank you for hanging here with me still. But I do have a whole podcast series on marriage at the, at the, on the podcast or over at the blog, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But listen, friend, if you're not married yet, please know marriage is serious and make sure you are not entering in with a, with, make sure that you, I should say that you are entering in with a view that desires to honor the Lord and lay down your life for your spouse. You are entering into this covenant for life. And if you are married, The word divorce should not be part of your vocabulary or your thinking. It is not commanded by Jesus or the Apostle Paul. And even amid the clauses we talked about here regarding adultery and abandonment, you should have the permanence view on your mind and heart till death do you part. Seek reconciliation, appropriate the gospel in your marriage, and love one another as Jesus has loved you. Forgive 70 times 7. Seek counsel, seek help if you need it. Those are good things. Model Christ in your marriage and pray that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident and continuing to grow in your lives. If you are divorced and it was on unbiblical grounds, please hear me here. Just repent. Seek the Lord for your fulfillment in your life as you remain single. Living a life of singleness is far better than committing the sin of adultery if you remarry. And then also now, if you have remarried and your divorce was on unbiblical grounds, Confess your sin before the Lord and rest in his forgiveness. There's forgiveness in Christ for all our sins. God's grace is greater than all our sin. James Montgomery Boyce had some good words as we're starting to wind down here. He said, It is also true that Christians who marry out of God's will and get divorced remarry often to Christians and that God seems often in his great grace to sanctify and bless the remarriage. Does this mean that in this case, God has changed his standards? Not at all. But it does mean that even divorce and remarriage, serious though they are, 
are not unforgivable and that God is always able to start with his children precisely where they are and bring blessing. The churches should never be closed to such people, and Christians above all men should show mercy. Perhaps even if such persons marry in rebellion against God's will, he may bring repentance and he may yet greatly bless the new home. And then the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones seem to be appropriate here on forgiveness. Have you nothing to say about others as someone? All I would say about them is this, and I say it carefully and advisedly and almost in fear, lest I give even a semblance of a suggestion that I am saying anything that may encourage anyone to sin. But on the basis of the gospel and in the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven and I assure you of pardon. I hear the words of our blessed Lord, go and sin no more, end quote. My friends, We too often can get our standards from the world. May we be people of the book and abide by God's word. His way is best and there is purpose in all things. We must hold to the Lord's teaching on divorce and remarriage. Take a stand against divorce and remarriage on unbiblical grounds. Remember God's high view of marriage and determine to those of us who are married that we have entered into a covenant with another that should be till death do us part. And John Chrysostom, I totally botched that, but it's um, I'm gonna, it's C-H-R-Y-S-O-S-T-O-M, and I'm going to put his quote in the show notes. He said, For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? End quote there. So may we be those who don't have the word divorce on our tongues, but have the words of love and commitment and forgiveness and reconciliation, because Jesus is truly enough always. Thank you, my friend, for your time today. And again, the full show notes are at the blog, and I'll have quite a few resources there if you want to do more studying and reading on your own. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be so appreciative if you could take a moment to leave a rating and a review wherever you listen in. They have just helped so many people find the podcast and it has just been a sweet blessing to read your comments. So I'm super grateful for you all. Thank you, my friend. And I'll be back next year and we're going to keep working through the Sermon on the Mount. This will be my last one of the year. So And if you've not checked out, just a quick resource, our free library of printable resources at the blog, I'd love you to do so. They may be a help to you in your walk with the Lord. There's like a daily time with the Lord sheet and um, I'm trying to think what else we got on there. I'm totally blanking right now. There's a menu planner and a cleaning schedule and there's a booklet on 20 ways to find time with the Lord if you're super busy. There's delighting and motherhood. Um, there's a couple ebooks. So I'd love you to take a peek if you get a chance. And you can do so by just becoming a blog subscriber. I don't email often, really just when I put out a, a new post or podcast. And then I usually send out a monthly newsletter that's packed with some um, helpful resources in it. So I'd love you to be a subscriber. And I'll link to that too in the show notes. So My friend, thank you again so much for your time. And I do pray that you have a very blessed week. 